0: Our scripture reading today is taken from Luke chapter 24. You'll find the passage printed beginning on page of 884 in your pew Bible. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading verses 1 through 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, marveling at what had happened. This is God's word. It's trustworthy, and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Well, today we come to the main event. This is what it's all about. This forms the very heart of Christianity, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. And let's face it, if it didn't actually happen, then there's no point in us being here today. We might as well all go home, and frankly, I've got to find a new job. Christians believe that Jesus died a violent death on a Roman cross, and then they laid his very dead body in the tomb. But on the third day, God raised him up with a new physical body, and he entered into a whole new mode of existence. The problem, of course, is that people from the first century right on down to the 21st have struggled to believe it. We all know, don't we, that when people die, they stay dead. But the fact that the dead do not normally rise is in fact not an argument against the Christian claim. It is part of the Christian claim itself. Christians believe that what happened to Jesus was unique, and that's exactly why we worship him as we do. But the fact remains, it has always been easier to dismiss the story of the Resurrection as merely a fairy tale or a fabrication. But there are others who would say, well, maybe the Resurrection was not a deliberate lie. Perhaps it was never intended to be interpreted literally. And so there are some who would argue that we should treat the Resurrection as a symbol that is intended to show us a timeless truth. And so they spiritualize the story of the resurrection. Jesus was only raised in a spiritual sense. He was never raised with a physical body, but they might suggest that the disciples believed that they could still feel Jesus' presence with them even after he was gone. And that sense of his presence is what continued to motivate and inspire them to follow after Jesus' example. They remembered how Jesus accepted his undeserved suffering and death without losing faith in God. And they remembered the ways in which Jesus offered words of forgiveness and grace even to those who tortured and victimized him. And so Jesus continued to live on in the memory of his followers. The resurrection in that case becomes merely a symbol of the triumph of the human spirit, or the power of love. Love is stronger than death. But with all due respect, with all due respect, if you turn the resurrection into a story, into a symbol, well then, you make a mockery of history. Because Christianity, perhaps more than any other faith, is a historic religion, it is based on historic events. And the earliest Christians staked their lives on the historic reality of the resurrection. And if you therefore refuse to accept that Jesus was bodily raised from the dead, well then the onus is on you to come up with a historically plausible alternate explanation for the sudden emergence of the belief in the resurrection of Jesus. The Oxford professor, C.S. Lewis, once wrote this. He says, it's very necessary to get the story clear. I heard a man say, the importance of the resurrection is that it gives evidence of survival, evidence that the human personality survives death. On that view, what happened to Christ would be what had always happened to all people. The difference being that in Christ's case, we were privileged to see it happening. This is certainly not what the earliest Christian writers thought. Something perfectly new in the history of the universe had happened. Christ had defeated death. The door, which had always been locked, had for the very first time been forced open. So the question is, did Jesus actually defeat death? And if so, what difference does it make? And those are the two questions that I would like us to take up this morning. Did the resurrection actually happen And if so, why does the resurrection matter? So let's take up that first question first. Did the resurrection happen? And what I'd like to do is ask you to consider three claims. Now we can debate the significance of these claims, but I would suggest that we have to accept them as facts because they are what historians would call historically secure. We can trust that these facts are true as much as we can trust anything that we know about the ancient world. So the first claim is that the tomb was empty. Now, unlike the historians, Plutarch and Suetonius, who wrote their biographies of Julius Caesar a hundred years or more after Julius Caesar's death, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were written within a few mere decades of the events that they record. And they show all the marks of authenticity The Gospels are not identical with one another. There are slight differences in some of the details, and that's exactly what you would expect when dealing with eyewitness accounts. And yet, despite those surface discrepancies, all four Gospels are united in their testimony that the tomb was empty. And that's exactly what Luke tells us in this Gospel. Several women who are named watched as Jesus died, They saw where his dead body was laid in the tomb. And then they went to the tomb at early dawn on the first day of the week after the Sabbath had passed with the spices that they had prepared. They go to the tomb expecting not to find a risen Jesus, but a very dead Jesus. A very dead Jesus in need of a proper burial. But when they get there, the body was not present. Now, it's remarkable that the Gospels unanimously agree that women were the first witnesses of the empty tomb. And that's remarkable because women in the first century were not allowed to testify in court. They were not considered credible witnesses, especially when it came to religious matters. There was a critic of Christianity in the second century named Celsus, and he dismissed the testimony of Mary Magdalene by saying that she was, quote, a hysterical female. And notice here in verse 11 that Luke candidly admits that the apostles did not immediately receive the message from the women. They thought it was nothing more than an idle tale, and they didn't believe it. So just imagine what's going on here. Given ancient attitudes towards women, you've got to believe that the earliest gospel writers must have felt under enormous pressure to change that one little detail, to suggest that perhaps men were the first witnesses of the resurrection, rather than women being the first witnesses of the empty tomb. But none of them did. They all insist on this one point, which shows us that these stories were not merely invented. They could not have been fictionalized. Now, of course, a number of alternative explanations have been offered for what might have happened. Well, perhaps the women went to the wrong tomb or the body was stolen or maybe the body was eaten by dogs. One of my favorite alternative theories is known as the swoon theory. And here people suggest that Jesus didn't actually die on the cross, he merely fainted. And then he revived later in the cool of the tomb and then left of his own accord. But frankly, I find it much harder to believe that after being tortured and flogged and crucified, that Jesus survived 36 hours in a cold, dark tomb without food or water or heat or medical attention and then recovered with sufficient strength to be able to remove the boulder that sealed the entrance to the tomb, escape detection of the guards, and then convince his followers not that he'd been beaten within an inch of his life, but that he had conquered death itself. I mean, talk about a conspiracy theory. No, the best argument really is that the tomb was empty. The easiest way to discredit the early Christian movement would have been for someone to simply produce Jesus' body. And you can bet that the authorities wanted to do so, but no one ever did. And I find it rather intriguing that despite the fact that many times people turn burial sites into shrines littered with flowers and tokens of love, There's absolutely no record of Jesus' followers venerating Jesus' grave. Why not? Because he wasn't there. So the first claim that we need to consider is that the tomb really was empty. The second claim that we need to consider is that the risen Jesus was seen. The Gospels record for us at least 10 different appearances of the resurrected Jesus to different people in different locations and in different states of mind. And the Apostle Paul reproduces a definitive list for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He tells us that Jesus appeared to individuals like Peter and James and Paul himself. That at times Jesus appeared to small groups of people together. He mentions on the one hand the 12 and in another place all the Apostles. And at one point Jesus appears to 500 people at one time. Now, What's clear is that Paul appeals to the role of these people as eyewitnesses who were not only still alive, but they were known to the community of people to whom he was writing. And so the implication was clear. If you don't believe what I'm telling you about the resurrection of Jesus, here are the witnesses. Go and speak to them for yourself. And all it would have taken is for one person to say, look, I was there, none of that happened, but no one ever came forward. Now, some have suggested that these so-called appearances of Jesus were nothing more than hallucinations, but I don't know, how do you get 500 people to have the same hallucination? I don't know how you do that, even if you're on the most powerful of drugs, and these people certainly did not think that they were hallucinating. Ancient people knew about ghosts. They knew that sometimes people had visions of loved ones who had died, and even if those visions happened quite frequently, they knew that they must be seeing something, because the reality is that the body of their loved one was still in the grave. But when it comes to Jesus, his body wasn't in the tomb. And they didn't think that they were talking to a ghost. They didn't think that they were merely hallucinating because they could touch Jesus' body. They could see the marks of his wounds. And they watched him not only prepare, but then eat a meal. And I don't know, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a ghost eat breakfast. So the second claim that we need to consider is that the risen Jesus was seen, and the third is that the disciples were changed. A striking feature of the Gospels is that they don't present the disciples in a very positive light. Have you ever noticed that? They don't have much faith. They never understand what Jesus is talking about. They're constantly jockeying for position, putting themselves forward, and they consistently, consistently let Jesus down. But after the resurrection, they're completely changed and they are willing to risk their lives for what they have seen and what they've heard. Take Peter. Peter was so weak need, that he denied ever knowing Jesus. Not just once, not twice, but three times. And yet, afterwards, he proclaims the resurrection of Jesus with such boldness that he gets arrested. And then when he's finally released, you know what he prays for? More boldness. The authorities don't know what to do with him. And then there's James. I like to call James Little Jimmy. He was Jesus' younger half-brother. And the Gospels don't hide the fact that Jesus' half-brothers did not initially believe in him. And yet after the resurrection, Little Jimmy, James, becomes the pillar of the church in Jerusalem. And then there's Paul. Paul was famous for Persecuting Christians. He went from town to town dragging Christians off to prison. But then, after he encounters the risen Christ, he becomes the greatest defender of the faith. So, how do you account for all of this? Now, it's possible that the disciples made it all up, that they made up the story of the resurrection of Jesus. But if so, not one, not one ever broke down and said that it was all a lie. Now, people will die for something that they believe to be true. But no one, I promise you, no one will ever die for something that they know is false. And the fact is that all of the apostles, except for one, died for their faith. According to tradition, Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned. Paul was beheaded. So you see, something must have happened. Something of Explosive force in their lives must have happened in order to transform their doubt into faith and their fear into courage. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright makes the point that worldviews don't usually change on a dime, they tend to evolve over time. And yet the resurrection of Jesus literally springs up overnight and then spreads around the Mediterranean like wildfire. And this is an odd feature of history because no one from a Jewish or a Greek background was expecting anything like the resurrection of one single individual in the middle of history while the rest of the world goes on as it does. So how do you account for that? Each of these don't mean all that much on their own. An empty tomb would be a tragedy. Sightings of Jesus all by itself could be dismissed as mere illusions. And the transformation of the disciples' lives by itself, well, that would be remarkable. None of these things on their own mean all that much, but taken together, they provide a compelling argument for the historical reality of the resurrection. In fact, the resurrection of Jesus offers the most explanatory power for those three claims. The tomb was empty, the risen Jesus was seen, and the disciples were changed. But still you might say, so what? Who cares? What difference does it make? Well, let me suggest that it makes all the difference in the world because if Jesus was bodily raised from the dead on the third day, well, then that changes your past, your present, and your future. See, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus changes your past. In 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul acknowledges that the resurrection of Jesus is the hinge upon which Christianity turns. If Jesus hadn't actually been raised from the dead, then none of this matters. He says, if Jesus hasn't been raised, your faith is futile. And he says that Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Isn't that a sad way to put it? Christians are of all people most to be pitied. Because despite what we say, Jesus hasn't actually done anything about our sin. We are still in our sins. And what's worse than that, he suggests that we're guilty. We're guilty of misrepresenting God because now we're saying that God raised Jesus from the dead when he didn't. So if Jesus hasn't been raised, this is all in vain. But Paul insists that no, God in fact has raised Jesus from the dead and the resurrection vindicates Jesus' claims. It vindicates the claims that Jesus made about himself. The resurrection is God's yes, spoken over Jesus. He says, yes, this is in fact my one and only son. And yes, he has done what only he could do. He has atoned for sin. And if you are united to Jesus by faith, well, then God speaks that same yes over you. And therefore, you can rest assured that your sins, all of them, can never be held against you. They have been blotted out. And that is not something to be taken lightly. Who of us could say that we haven't done or said something for which we could never really make amends? Some of us might say, I'm not perfect, I've made mistakes, but I haven't done anything all that wrong, which would require God's forgiveness. But that is a superficial response. Look more deeply. Look more closely at your most important relationships with your spouse, with your children, with your parents, with your siblings, with your friends, with your colleagues. One author puts it like this. The things we have done wrong seemed, or mostly seemed, small at the time. The word of encouragement withheld, the touch of kindness not given, the visit not made, the trust betrayed, the cutting remark, so clever and so cruel, the illicit sexual desire so generously entertained, the angry answer, the surge of resentment at being slighted, the lie that we thought would do no harm. And surely not too much should be made of it, we thought to ourselves. But now, but now it's come to this. You see, who of us could say that we haven't done or said something or failed to do or say something that we could never take back, never change, never undo And the full weight of all those past transgressions is enough to crush us, if we're honest. But you see, the promise of the gospel is that if Jesus has been raised, then it vindicates Jesus' claims to have died on the cross on our behalf. And therefore, our sins can never crush us. Because they already crushed him in our place. So our faith is not in vain. Most of the time, we couldn't bear to face the facts. But forgiveness makes it possible for us to confront the reality of who and what we are. And not only that, but to rest in the knowledge that we can be restored. See, Jesus not only promises to forgive us, but to personally wipe the tears away from our eyes. Everything that has ever been wrong, somehow, some way, will be made right in every relationship that has been broken will be healed and made up for. Why does the resurrection matter? Because it changes your past. But not only that, it changes your present. Interestingly, all four Gospels echo the words of Genesis chapter 1 and tell us that the resurrection of Jesus took place on the first day of the week. They all emphasize that. It took place on the first day of the week in order to signal that the resurrection represents the first day of the new creation. This is just the beginning. God has promised to do for us at the end of history what he did for Jesus in the middle of history. Just as he raised Jesus with a new physical body to live in a new physical world, so he will do the same for us. His goal is not to remove us from this world, but to renew this world. He's not going to whisk us away to enjoy some ethereal existence beyond the clouds. No, he's going to give us new bodies. To live in a new physical world because he's going to usher in a new creation. And this is just the beginning. And there's an important link, therefore, between that future hope and our present responsibility. We are called now to anticipate God's promised future through our actions now because we're supposed to provide the world around us with a picture. And it might only be a shadowy glimpse, but it's a real picture, nonetheless, of what the world will be like when he makes all things new. And let me tell you why that's so important. There are many people today who have a problem with the resurrection. They, they have a real hard time believing that it could possibly be true, but let me tell you why you should want it to be true. You should want the resurrection to be true. Look, so many of us are committed to making the world a better place. That's what we most want. And that is why we work so hard to eradicate poverty and hunger and illiteracy and human trafficking. That's why we strive to strengthen families and to establish justice and to pursue racial reconciliation and to care for the physical world. But do you realize that if there is no God, then everything we are, everything we do will eventually be swallowed up by death. If there is no God, then everything we strive to accomplish in this life is like building sandcastles on the seashore. It'll all be washed away by the waves of time. Everything we accomplish, everyone we've ever loved, will be swept away. But you see, if There is a God. And if this God has made all things new in and through Christ, then only Christianity, only Christianity, gives us an incentive to pour ourselves out in service to the world knowing that nothing we do in service to Jesus will ever be lost. Everything we do now in service to Jesus in our mortal bodies will last Nothing will be lost, nothing will be wasted. Everything counts, everything matters. And that's why we should want the resurrection to be true. N.T. Wright goes on to say this, the message of the resurrection is that this world matters, that the injustices and pains of this present world must now be addressed with the news that healing, justice, and love have won. If Easter means that Jesus is only raised in a spiritual sense, then it's only about me and finding a new dimension in my personal spiritual life. But if Jesus is truly risen from the dead, Christianity becomes good news for the whole world, news which warms our hearts precisely because it isn't just about warming hearts. Easter means that in a world where injustice, violence, and degradation are endemic, God is not prepared to tolerate such things, and that we will work and plan with all the energy of God to implement the victory of Jesus over them all. Take away, Easter, and Karl Marx was probably right to accuse Christianity of ignoring problems of the material world. Take it away, and Freud was probably right to say Christianity is wish fulfillment. Take it away, and Nietzsche probably was right to say that it was for wimps. But you see, if Jesus has been raised, well then, no, we care about the material world. And no, Christianity is not mere wish fulfillment, and no, it's not for wimps because we seek to anticipate God's promised future through our actions now, and everything, therefore, that we do now matters, and everything will last. But the resurrection not only transforms our past and our present, it changes our future. An atheist will tell you, you've only got one life to live, and then it's lights out. So enjoy the moment while it lasts. But an atheist would also say, but don't worry, Death is nothing to be frightened of because when you die, there's no you left to worry about. So don't worry about it. You might lose your individual identity, but you won't be around to care. There's just one little problem with that argument. How does the atheist know? How does the atheist know that there will be no you left to worry about death? How does the atheist know that we lose our individuality in the cosmic abyss as we become just a little speck of stardust in the universe? Has the atheist died and come back to life? You know, as modern people, we spend an inordinate amount of time and energy and money trying to distract ourselves from the reality of death. We work so hard to deny its truth, and that leaves us spiritually impoverished. We are so woefully ill-equipped to deal with death. We have so few resources to help us cope with it when it strikes. And that's true when it comes to our own death, it's especially true when it comes to the death of someone so close to us. I remember one person said to me, you never really think it's gonna happen to you until it does. And you see, that's why the resurrection matters. Just as God raised Jesus with a new physical body, so he will raise us with new physical bodies to live in his new physical world. This is just the beginning. And that is not this vain wish that somehow things will turn out all right in the end. No, for Christians, this is rock-bottom reality. This is what Christians refer to as the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And this is what changes everything. You see, the problem with these old bodies is that they're subject to decay and to death. But through his death and his resurrection, Jesus has not only conquered over sin and evil, he has defeated death itself. And that means that we will get our bodies back. We will not lose our individual identity and become a a speck of dust in the universe. No, we'll get our bodies back better than before. Some of us are probably hoping to trade in these bodies for a better model. Well, I've got good news for you. We will, because our new resurrected bodies will be better if for no other reason than because they will last, and they can't be taken out by death. And if we're united to Jesus by faith, then we need not be separated from the ones that we love the most, because for many of us, that is what is most painful. We long to be reunited with their faces, with their voices, with their touch. And you see, if Jesus has been raised, well then it means that in him we will see that face. We will hear that laugh. We will feel that embrace again. Death does not get the last word. And we will not watch as evil destroys this world. No, we'll see it renewed in justice, peace, and love. This is just the beginning. So do you believe it? Do you believe it? Well, I'd like to close by reading you a letter that was written by a young German pastor named Hermann Lang to his parents. You've probably never heard of this person, but he wrote this letter on the very day that he knew that he was going to be executed by the Nazis because of his opposition to Hitler. Listen to what he writes. When this letter comes into your hands I shall no longer be among the living. The thing that has occupied our thoughts constantly for many months is now about to happen. If you ask me what state I am in, I can only answer, I am first in a joyous mood and second, filled with great anticipation. What consolation, what marvelous strength emanates from Christ who has preceded us in death In him I have put my faith and precisely today, precisely today, I have faith in him more firmly than ever. As so often before my parents, I should like now to refer you once again to St. Paul. Look up the following passages, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans chapter 14, verse 8. In truth, look anywhere you want in the Bible. Everywhere you will find jubilation over the grace that makes us children of God. What can befall a child of God? Of what indeed should I be afraid? This day brings the greatest hour of my life. Everything that I have till now done, struggled for, and accomplished has been, at bottom, directed to this one goal, whose barrier I shall penetrate today. No eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. For me, believing will become seeing. Hope will become possession. And I shall forever share in him who is love. Should I not then be filled with anticipation? What's it all going to be like? The thing that up to this time I've been permitted to preach about, I shall now see. There will be no more secrets, nor tormenting puzzles. Today is the great day on which I return to the home of my Father. How could I fail to be excited and full of anticipation? And then I shall see once more all those who have been near and dear to me on earth. From the very beginning, I've put everything into the hands of God. If now he demands this end of me, good, good, his will be done. Until we meet again in the presence of the Father of light, your joyful Herman. Could you write a letter like that? Could I write a letter like that? I don't know. What I do know is that he knew what he was talking about. He did not possess some vain wish that maybe things will turn out all right in the end. No, he had laid hold of the sure and certain hope of the resurrection. And now's your chance. Now's my chance. Did the resurrection of Jesus really happen? You can bank on it. And what difference does it make? It makes all the difference in the world. The resurrection of Jesus changes our past. It changes our present. And yes, it will change our future. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we know that it is hard to believe that you actually raised Jesus from the dead and that you will do the same for us. But help us to consider these three claims, which may not mean all that much on their own, but taken together, they provide us with a compelling reason to trust in the historic reality of the resurrection of Jesus. Help us to lay hold of that sure and certain hope for ourselves so that we too might experience the ways in which you utterly transform our past and our present and our future, in Jesus' name, amen.